My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus said to his disciples, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won over your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you so that every fact may be established in the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or a tax collector. Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, amen, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything for which they are to pray, it shall be granted to them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The Gospel of the Lord. A few years ago, a young woman in her 30s named Carrie's Crag wrote this amazing book, very vulnerably recounting one of the most horrific things that could have happened to her years earlier as an 11-year-old. Back in 1992, she and her family were sound asleep when a man broke into her home, high on, on drugs, looking for something to steal. As the burglar stumbled around the kitchen, he found a carving knife in the kitchen and grabbed it as he began to search through the rest of the house until he eventually encountered Carrie's father, who was woken up by the sound of all this commotion. The would-be burglar stabbed Dr. Jeffrey Craig, killing him in his own home while his family were only a few rooms away. Understandably, their, their lives were devastated by this horrific act by this man. Carrie's wrote that her next memory that she has after this brutality was sitting in the corner of her neighbor's bathroom, knees tucked up to her chest, shivering and wondering, what just happened to my world? That heart-wrenching story is the prelude to the book entitled Dead Reckoning, How I Came to Meet the Man Who Murdered My Father. She describes how close to 20 years later, after these fateful events, is when she found herself in this program where she would be able to contact the offender. Up until that point, she had newspaper clippings that maybe have given details which she had gone over and over countless times. Intruder stabs doctor to death. Accused killer fingers best friend for the crime. Doctor's murderer sentenced to life term. All headlines that gave information, but none of which could speak 
to the unanswered questions she had, like, why did he come into her home? Why did he lie about who killed her father for so long? Did he understand what he had taken from her family? So for close to three years, Carries and the man who killed her father exchanged over 15 letters. The prisoner wrote to her at first about his apprehension, not wanting to deal with any kind of confrontational retribution or, as he described it, a witch hunt. As Carries explained her intentions, he agreed to engage in this process. And eventually, responding to her letters, he started to share his own troubled upbringing. He slowly took more and more responsibility for his actions. The correspondence would grow more reflective and deeper for Carries and the offender on, on Dr. Jeffrey, on the crime, on the aftermath. And at that point, the convict wrote to her, there's nothing I can do to change what happened that night. Hopefully, I can honor his life by making the most of mine. It almost sounded like a cliche, like something we've heard from similar stories before, which is what made Carrie's response to him rather unique. She writes that she was devastated to learn, like so many other offenders, this man knew nothing about her father, which caused her to ask, how can he be held accountable for a crime when he didn't know whom he had taken away? It was at that point that she summoned the, the confidence and felt safe to go and meet him face to face. And she explained how all the emotions that she imagined feeling were, were there in that room. Anger, upset, confused, satisfied, peace, they were all in that room. Listening to him, she learned how his life of crimes had escalated up until that fateful night when he entered Carrie's family's lives and their home. And after nearly 12 years in prison was when he finally was able to ask to see a psychiatrist who was able to start to challenge him on, on his lies and eventually got him to a place where he began to own his actions. So often when people encounter a gospel passage with a similar message to the one we just heard, there's a, a bunch of misconceptions that immediately make this process seem impossible. The call to engage in the work of reconciliation is understandably difficult. There's initially that refusal or reluctance to, to even begin the work where we ask, well, why do I have to do anything when something was done to me? For example, he cheated on me, why do I have to do anything? There's resistance thinking that reconciliation, that forgiveness means going back to life before whatever infraction happened. That's where that phrase, forgive and forget, can add another level of confusion and difficulty. So people might think, for example, that if you fired someone who worked for you, that you found was stealing from you, that if you really forgive him, you're gonna rehire him. Then there's the unreasonable expectations that we can place on ourselves or on others, that all of this needs to be accomplished instantaneously like a, a made-for-TV movie that we're watching where we're realizing we only have a few minutes to wrap this whole story up. None of which is true or an expectation that Jesus puts before us as his followers in setting about this work of reconciliation. 
The passage we just heard similarly can bring a lot of misconceptions up as well. On the surface, it sounds like Jesus is establishing this whole set of parameters, a system of divine justice where first you confront the person. If that doesn't work, if he doesn't own up, get a couple of people to go with you. If that doesn't work, then get the church involved. And if that doesn't work, treat him like a Gentile or a tax collector. When we remember how this was an initially Jewish audience and how they felt about Gentiles, the, the non-Jews, who they considered unclean, and tax collectors who were Jews who worked for the hated occupying force of the Romans, so they were unclean, but even more, they were considered traitors. So people might be thinking, Jesus is establishing a, a three strikes and you're out policy here. But we have to remember that a few chapters earlier in this gospel, St. Matthew shares how Jesus commended the faith of a non-Jew and performed a miracle that healed her child. So the message would be that in Jesus' view, the Gentiles are still loved and are still shown mercy. And the other important thing to remember is that Matthew himself had been a tax collector. He himself had been considered a traitor, an outcast, because at one time he was solely interested in enriching himself at the expense of his fellow Jews. So he lived an isolated, solitary existence. Well, Matthew the tax collector has become one of the 12 apostles. He's one of the four authors who will capture the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospels. So Matthew's making a point that for Jesus, even a hated traitor, despised even more than the unclean Gentiles, even they can and does experience his love and mercy. It's almost a, a more dramatic way than when Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? And he suggests seven times, and then Jesus goes back, try 70 times seven. In this narrative, Jesus is saying, treat them as you would a Gentile or a tax collector isn't excluding anyone. He's pointing out, recalling their own experiences that they have witnessed that reconciliation and forgiveness are universal offerings that God lavishly makes possible in Jesus Christ. It's almost as if St. Matthew is trying to capture Jesus calling his listeners out saying, I know what you want to do. I know what the human impulse is. But you've seen, you've experienced my love and mercy. And yeah, sometimes reconciliation is going to take longer and harder and be more of a struggle. But that's what the cross is all about. It's from the cross that resurrection comes. It's from the cross that I have made all things new, and it's from the cross that I make all things new. For Carrie's Crag, after her, her meeting the man who killed her father, she still struggled with a whole mix of emotions and feelings. She wrote him after seeing him saying that just coming into my home was an unjust act, knowing it was a family neighborhood, knowing that people and children were in there. But as every layer of hurt and anger and injustice was revealed, 
she was able to come to a place where she all of a sudden found herself saying, I'm sorry that you never had the opportunity to experience a father like mine. And she explained that despite how complicated and painful the whole thing was, she started to learn that in order for her to be well, she needed the offender to tell her what he had done. And in order for him to ever be well, he needed to hear how what he had done impacted her. As she summoned it all up, saying, our wellness became dependent on each other. Whatever pain, whatever wound it is that comes to our minds and hearts right here and right now, hearing Carrie's journey isn't made to, made, meant to make us feel bad for our own struggle or our shame, for our hesitation or our reluctance to even engage in the work of reconciliation. But hopefully, from her story, we can remember some really important truths. Most importantly, that in Jesus, we have come to know and experience the unfathomable love and mercy of an incredibly loving and merciful Heavenly Father. He reminds us that there is nothing we can do, there is no sin we can commit in which reconciliation is off the table for God. Jesus himself seeks after those who are lost, those who are isolated, those who feel that their lives are a complete mess and that there's no hope. And what does he do? He calls them by name to himself. The urgency is on our part to respond to his call, to repent of those sins and to let go of those mistakes especially utilizing the sacrament of reconciliation, getting to confession on a regular basis so that we're absolved of all those stupid things. Jesus can, and he does, make something completely new of them and all those situations in our own lives. But what's even more challenging is how Jesus calls us to engage in being agents of reconciliation as well to experience his divine activity in our own lives and the power that that has to actually loosen and to bind things. When we confront all that causes dysfunction, all that causes and creates division and bitters and grieves us, we're recognizing that our wellness depends on our ability to engage in the work of reconciliation or not. St. Mother Teresa, whose feast day was yesterday, once said, every human being comes from the hand of God, and we all know something of God's love for us. And we know that if we really want to love, we must learn to forgive before anything else.